It is, uh, it's really good to be back. Uh, I was in Disney World for the week, uh, which you'll hear probably like 5,000 illustrations from Disney World. For the, next, the rest of the semester will be Disney World illustrations. So. Um, but uh, I heard, and no surprise, Anthony did a uh, fantastic job walking you through the trumpets in Revelation 8. Um, he's awesome. Uh, but I did. I missed you. On th- it was weird on Thursday night to not see you all. So. We're going to now turn our attention to Revelation 12, and uh, I do. Here you go. I want you to consider Disney World as we enter into Revelation 12 because, you know, I, I began to notice something during our kind of five days in that kind of in that magical world, and it really is magical because a few weeks ago, if you were here, I told you that my my middle my middle child Annie, who's almost four, she is starting to kind of go through her. Or just kind of fearful stage, like she's starting to be scared of nightmares and monsters and and kind of bad people, and and that really played into our trip because you don't realize this, but it it's like hard to find a ride or a show, even at Disney World, that doesn't involve some sort of like bad, and and so you know we would go to. We'd go to Beauty of the Beast experience, right? She's scared of the unknown. Say, Annie, there's nothing scary here, you know. But then the beast would show up, right? And she would, she would plummet her face in, start crying. Some form of kind of evil would show up. And then I'd think, ah, yeah, that's right, the beast. And then, uh, you know, okay, I'll take her to a parade. There will be nothing scary at this parade. And it's all great until Maleficent as a dra- huge dragon turns the corner and she starts screaming, right? And so the final day, I take her on Peter Pan, and she's terrified, because Peter Pan, right, made in like the 80s. Nothing, like nothing scary. Until you turn the corner and Captain Hook's there, and she's crying on Peter Pan. And, and what, this is what I started realizing, is that almost every show, almost every ride, right, Disney is meant to enhance your experience. But how do they do that? Through some sort of portrayal of evil, they have to. Why is that? Like, why do they do that? What about if it's because Disney really knows something about reality? What about if Disney knows that if it's going to capture your imagination, if they're going to draw you in, then the stories that they tell have to fit reality. They have to fit your experience. And every compelling story, it has to have some sort of evil. It has to have some sort of real struggle against a real evil, however it takes form, because that's the truth of our life. We know that's how life feels. That's the story that's written into our spiritual DNA. Because what I want to suggest is Revelation 12 is going to say, that's the real story. And as we look into Revelation 12, it's going to dare us to suggest... That we're gonna, what we're going to read here is the cosmic story. It is the real, true, overarching story that makes sense of all your other little stories. That this is it. The, the, this is the bigger plot line. This is the bigger characters. This is the bigger action that is shaping and will make sense of your story. And Revelation 12 will dare to suggest this. If you don't see this... If you don't see the real story behind the story you're living in, then you've missed it. It really makes that big of a claim. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, would you, um, would you meet us in your word? This can be a, um, a very 
hard-to-understand passage. And we always need your spirit uh, to open our eyes, but especially in stuff like this, would you give us clarity of understanding uh, to be able to see Jesus? We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, she might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught, caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the, to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the, given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times and a half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Psalmist says that God's word is sweeter than honeycomb. May it be that for us tonight. Okay, this is the, the cosmic story. This is reality according to Revelation. So just like any story, let's look at it in this way. Let's see the setup, let's look at the action or the plot, and then let's look at where you and I fit in the story. First, the setup, verse 1 through 4. Like any good story, you're introduced to the characters. Who are the major player to, players? Who are the major characters in this cosmic real story that we're living in? And we find that there's three. There's a woman, there's a dragon, and there's this male child. So let's get our bearings on these. I'm going to try to be quick. But first, the woman... It tells you that she is a, that it's a great sign appeared. And the sign is this woman. A sign, by definition, points to something else, right? It points beyond itself to another reality. And so this woman is a sign of something. And she's clothed with the sun and moon under her feet. And she has a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant and she's going into labor. Scripture has to interpret Scripture. How do we know what this sign means? We go to the Old Testament... And there you find that this woman is a sign of the church, of the people of God. Joseph has this dream in Genesis 37 where he sees the 11 stars that are gathered around the sun and the moon. Those 11 stars are the, are the 11 sons of Jacob. Joseph would be the 12th, right? Those are the people of God. 
And then we see in Isaiah, you see multiple times, Isaiah 54, 26, 66, that the people of God, Israel, are characterized as a mother being in birth, about to get in labor pains. And so the woman here is the church, the people of God, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So who's the dragon? We're told again the dragon's a son, that it is not a literal dragon, but it's pointing to something else. The dragon's red, the color of blood and death. It has seven heads symbolizing this authority and intelligence. It has ten horns symbolizing this immense power. It has seven diadems, this crown symbolizing this princely authority. And you get this amazing symbolic picture of just how immense and powerful this dragon is that it can, this is symbolic, it can swipe down a third of the stars of heaven. Now who is this? Verse 9 tells us, that it is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And look, I'll stop for a second. I'll be honest. I don't know how that hits some of you. Some of you might think that it's silly that I'm up here talking about a real devil, a real person, a created being that hates Jesus and hates his people. But the Bible says it's true, that there really was this created angel who lusted after power, who wanted to be independent of God and therefore hates Jesus and hates everything that Jesus is about. And he, he is powerful. He has this kingdom of darkness and he, and he conducts real evil in this world. And I wish we had more time with this. I, I think I'm going to, we'll do some sort of Revelation Q&A Sunday night fellowship or something because there's just a lot of questions that are popping up. But that's who he symbolizes. And lastly, the child. Now, it's interesting. The child is not called a son because the child is the real thing. The dragon is waiting to devour this child right as he is born. Who is it? Well, verse 5 quotes Psalm 2. And Psalm 2, when it talks about the one who will rule all nations with the rod of iron, that psalm is a messianic psalm. It's all about the coming King Jesus. God's only begotten Son. God the Son. This child is Jesus, who 2,000 years ago really was born of a woman and really to this day still has a body. Those are your major players. Revelation 12 is saying all of world history is characterized by the struggle of these major players, the church, Satan and all his followers, and Jesus the King. Now why? Why, why does Revelation start here? Why does this story start here? Because I'm begging you to see that to make sense of this world and to make sense of your life, Revelation 12 says things are not as they seem. There has to be more than there, that is going on in this world than can be ascertained by the naked eye. There really is a bigger story that is shaping this story that we see. And we need to hear this. Our culture, and every culture has both good and bad in it, right? We're a product of our culture. We're a product of the Enlightenment. Which means this. We really do think everything can be reduced to natural explanations. Everything. And Revelation 12 is saying, no. Like you're blind if you think that. Everything cannot be reduced to what the, what the eye can observe. There's more going on. There's an unseen, there are unseen characters that are shaping what's visible. 
This goes, this goes back to Disney World. The, the question that I ended up hating that my kids would ask me is this. Daddy, is, is that the real Belle? Is that the real Cinderella? You know why I started hating that question? Because I didn't know how to answer it. I, look, I know this is going to make me sound crazy. On the one hand, I wanted to say no because, oh, like that's not the real bell. But what I don't want is my children to grow up thinking like everything is explainable by what I can see. Because actually, bell is real. Like, that really is the true story. Like, there really is a beautiful one that will come, comes and loves us as a beast and changes us. Like, there really is a prince that comes and loves a common people like us and brings us to royalty. There really is a conqueror who goes and defeats evil in our place. Like, the stories are real. And I don't want my kids to grow out of that. And that's the danger for our culture, is that we start thinking everything can be just explained away with natural stuff. But those are, the stories are real. They really are. And you aren't seeing reality if you keep explaining everything with natural causes. I'm not saying natural causes aren't involved. Of course they are. And Satan uses those things. But if the only way that you explain your struggle is simply through natural causes, if the only reason that you say, well, I'm struggling because I'm not disciplined enough, or I'm struggling because the environment that I live in, the house that I live in, is just tough, or because my family and home life is really broken, Those things are real. But that's not the only explanation. Resist the urge to reduce everything to natural explanations. Revelation is saying things are not as they seem. There is more that is going on. There really is spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus really is at work in this world. This earth has a bigger story shaping it. I'm begging you to see that tonight. And so the second thing you begin to see is the action. Right? What's the driving action behind this cosmic story? The action centers around Satan and his desire to devour this child, this Jesus. Why does Satan hate this child so much? Why does he seem just consumed with fury to devour this child? And the answer is because he has seven heads, because he's smart, he's intelligent. Satan has never forgotten what Austin read for us. That back in the Garden of Eden, when he was the ancient serpent, right? He takes the form of serpent. When he tempts Adam and Eve and they sin and they, they do what Satan does and they, they want power and independence from God. And when they fall, God comes and makes a promise to Satan. And he looks at Satan and he says, I will now put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says this. He, an offspring of the woman, will crush your head, Satan, while you bruise his heel. Satan never forgets that promise. He knows that God has promised to bring somebody born of a woman that will will crush his power and crush his kingdom and defeat him. And so the whole Bible is characterized by Satan trying to stop this child from coming. 
He hates the promises of God. He knows this child is going to crush his kingdom of darkness. And so whether it's Cain murdering Abel, whether it's Pharaoh trying to destroy Israel, whether it's King David, the promised line of this, of, this, of this child, being tempted to adultery and murder, however Satan tries to do it, he keeps trying to destroy the line. The line of this child, because he doesn't want the child to come into existence. But over and over, the Old Testament keeps telling the story of the Lord preserving and protecting his people. Like Jesus is coming, and you can't stop it. And so verse 5, it picks up at the climax of the action. This is it. It zeroes in on Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago because the promised child has finally showed up. This is the one that's going to crush the kingdom of darkness. And he's born of Mary. And God the Son himself, from birth to death, he is characterized by Satan unleashing his fury, trying to destroy him. Whether it's right when he's born and Herod it unleashes an edict for all the male children under two in Bethlehem to be destroyed, right? And he escapes to Egypt. Or whether it's Satan actually showing up to Jesus in the desert and tempting him to, 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 to go away from his mission, to make things easy. Or whether it's he's inciting Judas to betray Jesus and turn him over. And then Satan ends up using... The Roman Empire itself, the great powerful Roman Empire, to finally convict Jesus and hang him on a cross to extinguish him. And at that point, on the cross, it seems like Satan wins. It seems like light is is defeated. It seemed like the promised one is crushed. But here's what you realize. His heel only gets crushed. He dies. But three days later, he comes out of the tomb. And when he's resurrected, a declaration is made to the world that that the prince of darkness, the ancient serpent, he's conquered. Like he's defeated. He cannot win. The cross, this is beautiful, the very thing that Satan thought that he was going to use to defeat Jesus is the very thing that the Lord used to defeat him. It's beautiful. Evil's defeated at the cross in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And 40 days later, he ascends, symbolizing he's on the throne. That's what verse 5 says. And so the, the climax of this cosmic struggle is just summed up in one verse. Verse 5. Her child was called up to God and to his throne. And all that verse 7 through 12 does, it's the exact same events as verse 5. It just rewinds the tape and says... Let me show you the struggle of Jesus' life from a different perspective. Let me show you what's going on in heaven as Jesus wins the earthly victory. And what you see is that in Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Satan, his rule, his authority, it's defeated, and he's thrown down along with all of his angels. And verse 11 says Satan has been conquered. Here's what I want you to see. Most of Revelation 12, verse 5, verse 7 through 12, are not telling us something that we're waiting to see. It's not telling us that there's a dragon that's coming and we're waiting for this huge cosmic fight where Satan's going to be defeated. Most of Revelation 12 is showing you events that happened 2,000 years ago and saying, he lost. 
He was defeated. When Jesus died, was resurrected and ascended, ever since then, the cry has been this. Salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the cues of our brother has been thrown down. He's conquered. He's lost. And you need to know that. Like when Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. What was he saying? The victory's been won. Like the conquering has been achieved. Salvation is finished. This world is not Satan's anymore. It's just not. His kingdom is crumbling. And the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our God and King. And nothing's going to stop it. And I, like, what an encouragement that must have been to the Apostle John sitting on a prison on, an, on a rocky island. And what encouragement this must have been to the first century church when the whole Roman Empire was wielding its power trying to extinguish it. Because it must have felt like evil was going to win. It must have felt like evil hadn't been conquered. And Revelation says, look at this. He's defeated. He's conquered. And that needs to encourage you if you're a Christian. Because I don't know if you feel like me a lot, but sometimes I feel like evil is winning. Sometimes I feel like the sin within me is winning. And I keep lusting. And I keep lying. And I keep hurting the people that I love. And it feels like he's winning. And this is saying, look, the sin within and the evil without, it's defeated. It's fighting a losing battle. And you need to be encouraged by that. And so here comes the question, right? If most of these events have already happened... It's in the past, then where are we in the story? Like if Satan has already been defeated, then why in the world is there still so much evil? Why in the world is life such a struggle? And I'm glad you asked that. Because the passage tells us that where you and I are in the story is the same place that John, the Apostle John, in the first century church were. We fit in the story in verse 6 and verse 12 through 17. Those are, again, the same events, just seen from a different perspective. Verse 6, verse 12 through 17, describe world history since Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And here's what it tells us. Here's our place in the story. Because Satan has failed in his attempts to defeat Jesus, because he's been conquered, verse 12 says he knows his time is short. Satan absolutely knows Jesus is coming back. He believes it more than you and I do most of the time. And because he knows his time is short and he knows he can't touch Jesus anymore, he turns his attention to the woman, right? And he starts unleashing his fury on the church, right? And you get this picture of the woman, the church, who's who's fled into the desert. And the desert is always a picture of struggle. It's always a picture of hurt. And so you get this picture of, of where the church is today, where you and I, where we fit in the stories, we're in a desert. And we are feeling the fury of Satan. He's been defeated, yes. But he's like any crazy evil. Even though he knows he's defeated, he is dead set on causing destruction until it's finally over. He will unleash as much fury and wrath as possible because he knows the time is short. He will not surrender. He will not submit because submission and surrender is too much like Jesus. 
And he hates that. He wants power, destruction, manipulation. And so the church is in a desert, undergoing the fury of Satan. That's where we are. But then at the same time, you get the picture of the woman being nourished and protected amidst the struggle and hardship. That's where we fit in the story. We are a woman in a desert, undergoing the fury of Satan. It feels like a struggle, but we're also being nourished and protected and cared for by the Lord. And all I ought to ask you is, man, like, doesn't that fit? Doesn't that fit your experience if you're a Christian? That it feels like I'm being beat up sometimes? That it feels like I'm losing? Like I'm out in the desert? That things aren't the way they should be? But at the same time, there is a sweetness to this life. There is, like Jesus' love is real. And you struggle to believe that. And Jesus... And God's people are real and they really care for you and protect you. This is it. And this truth of where we fit into the story has got to keep us from two errors. First, like it really does need it needs to wake some of you up. Because I get it. Like college, like all of your life is ahead of you. Most of you are healthy, like the world is yours to conquer. The football team is number one in the country. Like there's so much joy and happiness right now. Right? It feels, it feels like everything is right in the world. Right? And, and, I, and I start describing that life is a struggle. And you're like, what do you mean? Like Saturday, I'm like hugging random people I don't know. I'm so excited. This world is at peace. Everything's right. That's how it feels sometimes. But Revelation 12 is saying, don't be duped. Like there's a real battle going on. Satan is real, and his powerful forces of darkness are real, and they know they've been defeated, but they are unleashing as much damage and inflicting as much guilt and shame as they can. And so some of you need to wake up and realize, like, there's a real battle going on. Satan hates you. You look too much like Jesus. And that just infuriates him. And he's flailing around with tremendous power trying to cause as much damage as he can to this world, to you, and to his church, to Jesus' church. But the other thing that needs to do is it really needs to comfort some of us. Because Revelation 12 is pressing in the reality that Satan has been defeated. He is conquered. And some of you are more probably like the first century church felt where you think, I don't know. Like, darkness is winning. Nothing feels peaceful. My family's dysfunctional. Everything feels like a struggle. Bad news seems to win the day. And what you need to hear is Revelation 12 says things are not as they seem. Evil is not winning. The kingdom of darkness, it's not growing. It's crumbling. And he knows it. He's a defeated enemy. And that needs to encourage you. So I really do. Like, I want to spend the last seven minutes and 40 seconds, I'm on a timer, examining specifically how does this ongoing battle against the angry and defeated foe, like, how is it going to feel and how is it going to look? I think this will be practical. I hope it will be sobering and encouraging. How is life in the desert going going to feel and look as you're attacked by Satan but protected by the Lord? And he gives you three descriptions of Satan that shows us what the battle's going to feel like. 
It's the same tools that he used against Jesus. It's the same tools he used against Adam and Eve. And it's the same tools that he's going to use against you. Satan is called three things. Verse 9, he's called the deceiver of the world. The Gospel of John calls Satan the father of lies. Satan hates truth. Everything that he does, the way that he attacks is always full of deception. He will try to inflict damage on you, increase pain, and torment you with lies. He will feed you all kinds of lies and deception. And he's good at it. Because usually there's truth in there. The best lies have some sort of truth in there, right? And so he'll say things like this. The reason that you're depressed, the reason that you're sad and lonely, is because the Lord of this universe doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your suffering. He doesn't care about your pain. If he did, he would stop it. Because he got the power to, right? Why doesn't he? Man, and you feel that. Or he'll, he'll feed you lies of self-righteousness, right? He'll point, he'll point out things in other people that just irritate you. You'll see things in other Christians that you just don't do, and it's just so hypocritical that they do that. And he'll feed you this lie that the reason that God likes you, the reason Jesus loves you is because you're better than those people. You don't do those things. No, no, you're not perfect, but you're better than them. And you start walking into self-righteousness and he's at work because that hurts you and that robs you of your joy. Or he'll go the other way and he'll feed you a lie and say, look, look, look. Jesus' commands, like they're a little ridiculous. His commands are a little strict. A little disobedience. It's not going to hurt anybody. Right? It's, It's fine. His commands are over the top. It's just making out with her. It's just for fun. It's just manipulating the truth a little bit for a laugh. It's not doing anything. And you start believing the lie. And disobedience will bring real damage. And rob you of real joy. But how does the Lord protect us and nourish us? Verse 11 and 17. It says that we hold to the testimony of Jesus. I love it. The only way that a lie gets exposed is next to truth. The only way that you can tell a line is crooked is you hold it up next to a straight edge. The way that Satan's lies get exposed is you hold it up to the truth of Jesus' word and the truth of his character. And so that deception is exposed as you put it next to the word of God, his testimony. And so, and so when that lie comes, that there's, like, the Lord doesn't care about you if you're suffering. He would stop it. You have to say things like this. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not give me all things? He cares about me. He sent his son to suffer for me and with me. I might not know particularly why this is going on, but he has reconciled me to God. He is with me. When I start noticing that I think highly of myself and I'm better than other people, I need to, like, the truth is Jesus' words to Simon the Pharisee. Simon, you love little because you've been forgiven little. Like, I just have no joy when I think I'm a good person. Because I don't think I need forgiveness. And when just a little disobedience looks so good, so life-getting, the truth of God's word says, that's the pathway of destruction. And here's here's the deal. The truth of God's word will be known to you in two primary ways. Like, keep showing up. 
All that Thursday nights is is trying to remind you of the truth and dispel the lies. But we also need to hear it from each other. Like, we need to encourage each other. And we need to remind each other that Jesus is real. And His forgiveness is real. And Jesus is with you. And I'm believing lies again. The second thing, right, says Satan wants to devour. He's the color of blood and destruction. Anthony's sermon, his name is Apollyon, which means he's a destroyer. Satan twists the truth, and he wants, to, he wants to ramp up all kinds of fear that he's going to destroy your life. Which means he will make it feel like following Jesus means that you lose. And so here's how it look, right? You'll find this guy that's interested in you. And you know, you know he doesn't love Jesus. You, you don't respect the guy. But here's the fear. Satan will say, come on. If you break up with this guy, you will be all alone the rest of your life. And that's death. And that singleness will destroy you. And that fear will make you cling to the idol of a boyfriend. He'll just intimidate you. Or he'll say, if you obey, if you don't cheat on this test, your life is destroyed because you won't keep up with everyone. Like your value is found in, in, in your grades and how much you can ensure your future. I'll intimidate you through fear by saying you can't be ordinary. If you're simply an ordinary student trying to follow Jesus, trying to rest in Him, you'll fail. Like your life will be over. How does the Lord protect and nourish us? Verse 11 and 17, it says, They love their lives even unto death. What about Jesus' works defeat the intimidation of Satan? It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus means death is not the end. It means that nothing, nothing can ultimately be taken from you that Jesus will not restore to you. Period. Whatever happened to Jesus is going to happen to you. And that has to begin to nourish your soul. And when he says you can't live without those things, we have to start naming our fears and exposing our lies and saying no. Like, my life is hid with Christ. Not a hair from my head will perish without Jesus' permission. Period. What, however Satan touches you is only through the loving hand of Jesus. I'm not saying that answers all your questions. But he is caring for you. And lastly, Satan's called the accuser of the brothers. He accuses day and night before our God. This is the hardest tool, I think. I think this is, the, this is the thing that really kills us. Because the best lies have a shred of truth in them. And what Satan will do is he'll accuse you day and night. And some of it's going to be true. He will say on a Thursday night before RUF, he'll say, are you kidding me? Like you're going to stand up and act like you're a campus minister and teach God's word. Like, you're a joke. You don't do half the things you tell people that they should do. And he's right. And it really starts messing with me. Or he'll say things like, who in the world are you to try to, like, love your sorority sister and tell them about Jesus? They know what you've done. They know what your life is like. You're a joke. Or he'll say, you're worthless. The reason you keep being rejected by people is because of who you are. 
And the Lord of this universe has rejected you too. You're such a hypocrite. Right? The only thing that you ever confess to people openly is your struggle to read your Bible. But deep down within, man, you're dealing with all kinds of crap. And you know it. And nobody else does. Who are you to call yourself a Christian? And the nourishment is verse 11. The blood of the Lamb. Man, I love this. The way we respond to Satan's accusations is we say, man, you're right. <laughs> like, I'm not worthy to be... I don't do all the things I tell students to do. You're right. There are plenty of things about me that are, that are worthy of rejection. I'm a hypocrite at heart. But I've never been accepted based on my own worthiness. It's never been about my obedience. I've been accepted because of the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb has washed me of all of my sins. And the work of Jesus has declared me righteous in His sight. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. My acceptance has never been based on my performance at all. And at that point, when you are shielded with the blood of Jesus and His righteousness, Satan has nothing to accuse. Nothing. Because the righteousness you wear is perfect. And so there's a real sense when Satan looks at you and accuses you and says, no, 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 no. Look at all your shame and your guilt. You still have a debt of sin that you've got to deal with. You can look at Satan and you say, you can take that up with my husband. Because Jesus has paid for my debt. And you can talk to him about it. And I'm righteous. And he's got nothing. That is why we feel beat down and struggle. The picture is of the dragon spewing this flood of accusation, deceit, and threats. But he gets swallowed up by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus' resurrection, and by Jesus' truth. And I just want to end by kind of appeal. Like, I, I hope on the one hand this is sobering. Because there's a real war going on. And there is no neutrality in this war. You are either with Jesus or you're with Satan. That's it. And you need to hear that. If you aren't with Jesus, you're following a defeated person, a person who doesn't love you, who wants your destruction, who wants to use you and abuse you. And I know, I know you think you're fine. Life feels great. But that's the sign of being duped. You think things are okay. And you're really following a defeated Satan. And you need to hear me say that. And I know you feel the ac- You feel the accusation. You know you're not worthy. But you deal with it by hiding, by blaming other people, or by trying harder. And you need to hear that Satan's real and his accusations are real. But you need to hear that the blood of the Lamb is also real. And it'll wash anything. But for the rest of you, here's your encouragement. If you're struggling, it's because you're precious to Jesus. Right? I go back to all the superheroes. This is why the stories are real. Whenever you watch Superman, you just end up feeling sorry for Lois Lane. Like she's always being kidnapped. She's always being hurt. She's always being tortured. Why? Because once the enemy figures out Superman's untouchable... 
They go after the thing that he loves. They go after the thing that's precious to him. Lois Lane. See, the bad guys in the movie know the best way to damage the one who's untouchable is to damage the one that, that that person loves. See, Satan has something right here. He knows that Jesus is one. He's untouchable. And he knows that Jesus deeply loves you. And so he just goes after you. He goes after you. He attacks and inflicts guilt, shame, and pain on his bride. But here's the problem. Satan, as always, underestimates the love of Jesus and underestimates his grace. And as Satan attacks, here's the crazy thing. All of Satan's attacks make us plummet farther into the experience of Jesus' love. Because as I start to suffer, I realize that my pain really is Jesus' pain. He really suffers with me. As he accuses me of my sin and I see it, it, it presses me farther into the joy of his, of his forgiveness and his grace. And all Satan's attacks do is press you deeper into the love of Jesus. You really are struggling tonight because you're precious to him. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to believe the unseen? Would you help us to believe that there's more that's going on than we can just simply explain away with natural causes? And the biggest thing we need to see is the grace and the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Even though it feels like we're in a desert, it feels like we're losing, you're protecting us, you've washed us clean, and your kingdom is coming. Help us to stand in truth and resurrection and in the blood of the Lamb. Amen.